And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. Streaming live at those times. Podcasts are at SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, and a bunch of other locations. And we thank those who have been linking us into those other locations for doing so. And we really do appreciate that because it just expands our reach and helps other people to get this information from our guests. As a matter of fact, when you're listening to the SoundCloud podcast, you're going to want to click on that little grocery cart. No, 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 no. We're not trying to sell you anything. I Not not directly. Let's put it this way. It takes you to our guests' website where you can find out more about them and the work that they are doing. And if you like the work that we are doing and you'd like to support us, you'd like to be a part of it, we would greatly appreciate that. All you have to do is uh, use our PayPal or Patreon accounts that are links on both the homepage as well as the missions page uh, to support us financially. Any amount is gratefully appreciated. And we thank those who have helped and those who are going to support us. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And also, if this is the first time you have listened to the program, whether it be the radio version or the podcast version, which I highly recommend you listen to because it's usually longer, we encourage you to um, read the missions page. You can hear, see what we're all about and then listen to the interviews and you can hear what we're all about. And what we're all about today is... Gravity and Grace and How to Awaken Your Subtle Body and the Healing Power of Yoga. And we're going to be talking with our a very special guest here on the program today, Micah Mortali. I thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah. Hi, Richard. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Now, Yoga has been around for thousands and thousands of years based upon the ancient wisdom teachings that I have read. Goes back a long way, um, and so I'm just curious as to, from your perspective, why is yoga even a big deal? <laughs> why is it important? Um, <clears throat> good question. Uh, yeah, yoga's been around a long time, but um, what most people think of today as yoga um, are the postures, and, and they're not quite as old as yoga itself. Um, you know, a lot of the, um, the postures that people think of as yoga, um, you know, probably go back a couple hundred years. Um, some of the oldest postures go back to about the 1400s. Um, you know, but yoga itself goes back, you know, at least a few thousand years. So um, it is a very large set of practices and beliefs. Um, you know, yoga comes from India and India is a big cu culture. Um, you know, there really isn't one um, definition really of yoga. It's a, it's a vast set of practices. Um, but I think it kind of falls into the category of uh, a wisdom tradition in that um, most of the different schools of yogic thought are based on um, practices. And the idea is that um, a practitioner engages in certain practices to inquire into the uh, nature of consciousness and reality and then test and experiment with the practices to try to arrive at, you know, universal truth. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it's been around a long time. And I think, you know, since, um, you know, since it came over to this continent, you know, with uh, some, you know, probably like one of the first yogis in North America was probably Henry David Thoreau. 
um, when he was reading the Bhagavad Gita and Walden Pond here in Massachusetts. Um, it's it's set, put its roots down in, in, in the United States and been, you know, very um, consistently deepening as uh, something that's really found a home here. Well, it's it's interesting that you, you mention him because um, my first awareness of the introduction, not just of yoga, but of the of the various philo- the philosophies that come out of the East, and in particular India, uh, were from Paramahansa Yogananda. Of course, that was in the twentieth early twentieth century. Mm-hmm. And um, but it you know it doesn't matter who brought it here. The fact of the matter is that we here in the West have had a real hard time embracing other cultures' concepts and philosophies. And I am wondering, from that perspective, the impact—not uh, not so much the impact, but the uh, the acceptance. I should say. I know that a lot of people they will go daily to uh, a a fitness center or whatever the we have a place here in town, for example, here in Santa Barbara. It's called Yoga Soup which I find rather interesting, uh, but I'm sure that they hold yoga classes there. And then, then they have all kinds of different, I, I will say, um, 21st century versions. There's now hot yoga, which I will never participate in. I left Phoenix to get away from the heat. Um, there's goat yoga. <laughs> uh, and I'm not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with those per se, but it seems as though people are are finding different ways to sort of bring others into the into an awareness of the importance of uh, of yoga and i know meditation if i'm correct meditation is a part of this of this process yeah absolutely i mean um i think that um, the practice of meditation is central um, within yoga, absolutely. Um, so, um, you know, but you're right. You'll, there's, there are very, very many variations of yoga, and um, there, there really always probably have been um, because there are different variations of people. And the idea, as you said, is that, um, you know, everybody's going to have different um, practices that are going to help them arrive in the present moment that are going to help them come into relationship with their breath and their body and their mind and their spirit. For some people, you know, that's doing, you know, yoga postures outside with, with goats. And for some people, um, that's going to mean, you know, sitting on a cushion in a meditation room in silence and focusing on the breath. And, and for other people, you know, it's going to be maybe, um, mindfulness practices just done outdoors, like maybe through forest bathing or mindful outdoor experiences. So, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, different different avenues for people to explore. Now, you hold a master's degree from Goddard College. Oh, you're also the author of Rewilding Meditation Practices and Skills for Awakening in Nature. You used a phrase just a second ago. What, what was that again? Uh, I probably used the term mindful outdoor experience. Uh, something along those lines in reference to nature. Yeah. And, and from my perspective, and I put this in the form of a question, would you consider nature to be our ultimate 
teacher? Uh, yes, I do. Um, I do. I think that, um, you know, nature, when I say, you know, when we, even the word nature is so funny. Um, yes, I, you know, I think the human beings, um, we certainly evolved in intimate contact with the earth. Um, and in fact, you know, I think, I believe we, we really are a manifestation of planet earth, our, our physical bodies, even our, our minds and our emotions and our consciousness evolved here on this planet as a part of this planet. So um, all of our senses that we utilize, our bodies, um, all evolved really in relationship with local ecosystems and our other relatives who we share the planet with. So I think that when we go outdoors and we allow our senses and our awareness to be immersed in the sounds and the seasons and the cycles and the sensations of nature, um, I think that there are a host of health benefits that we find as well as much needed perspective on our lives and wisdom that can be found by, um, by drawing closer to the earth. Um, there's, there's a word here that I'm looking at uh, in reference to your writings and teachings and the inspiration. Um, and I'm going to try to pronounce it. And you correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> please. Sure. <laughs> uh, Haudenosaunee. Yeah, Haudenosaunee. Haudenosaunee. Okay, it's concepts of the seventh generation uh, describe who, who or what is the seventh generation and it's reference to an, a date that you have listed here, 2029. Yeah. Uh, 2,229, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I beg so, your pardon. 2229. No, no, that's fine. That's yeah. fine. So, um, the, the concept of the seventh generation is a, a central concept of the Haudenosaunee people who um, are known by some um, as the uh, Iroquois. Um, But the Iroquois was the name that was um, given by the French, and the Haudenosaunee is what the uh, the Haudenosaunee people think of themselves as. So it's it's their own name for themselves. Um, But the Haudenosaunee are, um, you know, known to many as the Iroquois Confederacy and um, are, you know, living in many, many parts of New York State. Um, and concepts from the Haudenosaunee people inspired um, the United States government in our form of, of, uh, of democracy. Um, but they have a concept which is the seventh generation, and the idea is that when the Haudenosaunee um, endeavor to make political decisions or decisions concerning their lands or their environment, um, they take into consideration how it will affect those who are going to be living on this earth seven generations from now. And so it's an ethic of responsibility and caretaking for the future. Um, and also for the ancestors as well, because um, the idea being that the ancestors took those things into consideration um, seven generations prior. So um, when I was writing Rewilding, um, you know, this was really front of mind for me. I'm very grateful to the Haudenosaunee for sharing um, this this concept with the world. Um, and I give them credit, you know, for, for it. Um, and you know, so when I wrote rewilding, you know, uh, I wrote it with in mind of, you know, my, 
those who are going to my kids and their kids and their kids. And, you know, if you consider a generation as about 30 years, then seven generations from now will be 2,230. Um, and so, you know, thinking about who's going to be here on this earth then and, and mm -hmm. what we need to do today to make sure that they have um, clean air, clean water, a biodiverse and abundant ecosystem on this planet, um, ecosystems on this planet to, uh, to experience. Um, and I, so I kind of was guided by that idea as I wrote the book. Well, it's to me rather interesting because the, the process of experiencing nature is foreign, foreign to a lot of people. Now, I was born and raised in the uh, urban area of Phoenix, in the heart of Phoenix, Arizona, and did not have a lot of connection with the natural world per se. Now, we had a very nice front and backyard that was grassy. We had some trees in the front and the backyard. We had a, a what was really great was when we were living there, there were virtually no fences around the front yards and everybody's lawn was green. So we turned our street into a playground and mm. boy, did we have a blast. We would play kickball and soccer. And the beautiful thing was we had T sections at the end of the, each end of the street so that if so, nobody could come flying down the street without us noticing and saying, hey, car coming, get out of the road. Um, and, uh, yet I moved to Santa Barbara and the next thing I know, um, I'm living out in the rural part of the area. I live at the summit of what's referred to as the, uh, 154 with the San Inez mountains, uh, here that face that, that go east to west. They face north and south, which is unusual, um, and I've had experiences with large flocks of turkeys on the property, a bear, uh, probably a couple of bobcats that we are aware of, a, a family of deer, um, obviously quail and, and then all the various other types of smaller animals, rodents as well. Uh -huh. And one of the things that I have learned, it's the reason I, I wanted you to address that is that, and I use this as the example, if you would, in your experience, is there any species on the planet other than man that stores up anything for more than a season? Oh, that's an interesting question. And um, yeah, go on. No, well, I was just going to, no, and I'd love for you to address that because when I talk to people about this stuff. Um, you know, I, I go right to it and I say, there isn't, there isn't a species that does it. Uh, the, the example of the squirrel who gathers up, shall we say nuts, um, uh, for the winter, he's gathering those nuts so that he can live through the cold winters when there's nothing on the ground. Mm -hmm. Man yeah. is the only one that stores up for multiple seasons. God forbid yeah. we should have to rely on Twinkies to keep us alive right. yeah. <laughs> for generations. Yeah. Yeah. No, you know, uh, you know, I, uh, not that I'm aware of. Um, yeah. I don't know of any other animals that, um, that, that store, you know, food for more than one season. 
Um, I'd have to ask some of my uh, more seasoned naturalist uh, associates here on that one. Um, but, you know, not, no, not that I'm aware of, you know, one of the one one of the things that does differentiate our species from others, uh, you know, aside from this topic, which you brought up around food storage, um, certainly would also be um, use of fire. Mm -hmm. as a um, although when I, I shared that um, with some folks on Facebook not too long ago, uh, somebody posted a story that I guess ravens have been known to drop fire, um, at, I guess, according to legend or according to some reports. So maybe just us and ravens. I have to look more into that. But uh, yeah, 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 we, we're uh, we're unique in that sense. Well, it seems to me that uh, the uh, the natural world, Mother Nature, as we obviously refer to her, um sustains us and yet we have continually found ways to thwart her sustenance um i mean i i i get tired of watching the documentaries in that regard of of how we're doing that because it's not only depressing but it's kind of you know it's it's not too not too pretty it's not good stuff you know to watch Um, yeah, well, you know, that's why um, that's why I wrote Rewilding um, was because, um, you know, I'm, as we, you know, as we started off talking about yoga, you know, I've been, you know, in the in the yoga and the mindfulness industry for about 16 years. Um, I work at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health, which is the largest uh, yoga retreat center in North America. And um, we're located in, in Western Massachusetts in the Berkshires. And um being really deeply immersed in, in the yoga world and, you know, going to a lot of conferences and, um, you know, overseeing yoga teacher trainings and an Ayurveda school and a yoga therapy program um, for the past seven years, um, it just became very apparent to me that, like, even in, in this community, the yoga community and the, the meditation community that, that I'm in, um, nature disconnection seems to be um, almost as prevalent as it is in much of the rest of society. So, um, even, you know, most yoga classes and meditation courses are all offered indoors and temperature controlled spaces. And, um, many people that I interact with, uh, you know, are working eight hour, nine hour, 10 hour day office jobs. They're indoors all day. And then maybe they go to a yoga class, which is also inside. So they're really like not getting outside very much at all in their normal day to day routine. And, um, I came across a book um, by an author named Richard Louvre, um, and he wrote a book called Last Child in the Woods, Saving Our Children from Nature Deficit Disorder. And so he coined that phrase, nature deficit disorder, and he uses it to talk about the effects of um, this profound disconnect that modern people have from the outdoors. And there's a whole host of different ways that it shows up um, for many folks, and um, you know, everything from um, what he calls place blindness, which is really not knowing the environment you live in, not knowing the plants or animals, not knowing the ecosystem, just having no bond or connection with your land because you don't spend much time on it, to another concept called species loneliness, um, which, the, which the amazing author Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about in her book Braiding Sweetgrass, which is... Um, the way that mo many modern people feel a sense of um, almost like a ghost-like sadness, an unidentified sadness that she states comes from um, losing a connection with other species that we evolved in relationship to. 
So there's a lot of things going on. You know, the, the modern American spends uh, 11 hours a day looking at a computer screen or, a, or an iPhone screen um, in over 90% of their lives indoors. So I guess my question when I wrote the book was, if people are this disconnected from the outdoors, from other species, from their lands, um, you know, where will, where will the future environmentalists and, and caretakers of the earth come from? That was a question that Richard Louv posed in his book and something I really pondered. Um, so, you know, in recent years, I developed a school here called the Kripalu School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership, where we train people to become mindful outdoor guides, where they use mindfulness, being in the present moment, being curious, um, noticing what's happening around you to guide other people into connection with their lands. And so we've trained about 150 people in the last just over a year to go back to their communities and, and help guide folks back into relationship to their lands. And um, so I think, you know, as you address, like this disconnect is so prevalent, um, you know, my offering and what we're trying to do here at Kripalu is, um, is train folks to go back into their communities to help folks begin to reestablish those connections. One of the campaigns that I started back in September 2019 for this deck, uh, this, the uh, year 2020 was 2020, the year of perfect vision. And we are promoting people going within to 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 get that perfect vision for themselves. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I have noticed, and, and this is at the time you and I are speaking uh, I'm noticing that we're doing the same old things over and over again. We are basically about ready to repeat, uh, you know, uh, history. We haven't learned one doggone thing. And we are on the verge of self-annihilation. Um, and it's just, it's, it's, it's like, okay, if the, if I say big, if I, I try to stay as optimistic as I can, I'm sure you do as well, but I will tell you that if that is the case that we are on that verge, I want to be at ground zero. I do not want to be a survivor, uh, because this is, I, I, I can't tell you how, how frustrated I am that, not just myself, but the world just doesn't seem to want to shift collectively, wholeheartedly out of this malaise that we find ourselves in. This almost, I'll change the word from malaise to maze uh, that we find ourselves in. And it seems to me that the things that you are teaching, the things that you are sharing, especially in your book, Rewilding, reconnecting with your wild essence as you awaken your innate bond with the natural world. Um, we don't see this kind of behavior in other species. Not, not to the level where all of the other bears or all of the other elk or all of the other whatever the species is gather together to have a knockdown drag out. It doesn't happen. At least not and not as far as I'm aware. And that's why I, I, I look to you uh, when we talk about nature as our teacher. If only we could 
teach others. If uh, you know, and and I don't want to take any away anybody's free will, Micah. <laughs> but at the same time, it's like I want to grab them by the shoulders and say, "Will you please?" You know. Yeah, yeah. No, I I know it's 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 a quite a um, it's a conundrum, and uh, and I can really relate to what you're sharing and 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 connect with it and the feeling of um, just death, you know, just kind of wanting to throw your hands up. Um, with all the reports that we're seeing, you know, across the world, you yeah. know, whether it be, you know, the situation with Iran or, um, you know, Australia wildfires, and it was the Amazon a couple months ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like, you know, the apocalypse is just becoming normal, you know, just a backdrop to our day to day lives. And so, you know, I, I, I guess my answer to it um, is what I can offer and where I sit now is that um, I believe that if people um, get outside and train themselves to be in the present moment, to, to connect with their breath, to open their senses, to observe nature, um, that the wisdom, you know, that many of the great masters shared, whether it be through the Tao Te Ching, you know, or other ancient texts of nature um, have a lot to teach us and show us about how to live on this planet. And I think I really believe that the earth has shown other human beings how to live on this planet before and that other human beings have done it in the past in a way that brings forth harmony. Um, I think that the earth can be Eden. I think it can be quite wonderful to live here. Um, And I think we can figure out ways to live together. Um, and I think though that the, in order to do that, though, we have to, we kind of have to come to the realization and the awakening that we actually live on earth and that earth, you know, there are ways to live on earth that are uh, more sustainable, Mm -hmm. um, that are more life affirming. And I think nature can show us what those ways are, whether it be like where to build our homes and how to build our homes, what foods to eat and where to grow them. Um, you know, what animals we need to really take care of and watch out for, like, you know, how we as a species can become a part of the web of life as opposed to dominating the web of life. And I think that many indigenous cultures have kind of spoken about that over the many millennia. And um, it's really been sort of modern uh, consumer cultures that have kind of lost their way. Um, and, you know, the time is drawing nigh. I think we have to we either have to make those transitions or deal with the consequences. So, mm-hmm. Micah Mortali is my guest. Wilding, reconnecting with your wild essence as you awaken your innate bond with the natural world. We're going to continue our conversation here on Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Please stay tuned. Tell me your stories. And welcome back to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. I'm here with uh, Micah Mortali, and we're talking about his uh, latest work having to do with rewilding. You know, I I heard a phrase from... uh, I heard a phrase from uh, someone, uh, a good... uh, a, 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 a... I consider him a mentor, though I never met him. 
uh, but I listened to his music for a, a great deal of time. Um, and one of the, the, the somebody put together a memorial for him online on YouTube. Uh, his name was John Denver, and they put a memorial together, and they, they used a quote of his, and it's actually his voice talking about um, how uh, we all want to be wild and free. And when I first heard that, I'm going, okay, my definition of wild is not uh, uh, a calm thing. It's pretty chaotic. It's pretty crazy. But then again, I started listening to the rest of the words and when you think about it, the natural world is, from our perspective, using our words, um, it's, uh, it's wild. I mean, that's the word we used. But from their perspective, it's just life. That's just the way that it is. Whether it's a lion taking down a gazelle or whether you've got a, a bear who is uh, uh, suckling a kitty cat. And we've seen these incredible pictures of, of different species getting together, okay, in, in ways that we never would have thought, right? Sure. And, and they manage to, to function. Uh, and there is, there is a, 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 um, a food chain, so to speak. As, again, this is all man's definitions. But when you sit and watch nature, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I, I sit... One of the things I love about, for example, the Kentucky Derby, I love, I have no, I have no horse in the race, but I love watching them run. They are so beautiful when these horses run, or you see a film of uh, wild horses racing across the plains and hills, the, the, just the incredibleness, the muscles. I, we have a dog who's about 115, 120 pounds. He's just about a horse. And I got to tell you, I love watching him run for the same reason. There's something about yeah. that energy. Yeah, that, um, you know, E.O. Wilson, um, who is a very famous uh, biologist, um, came up with this term called biophilia in the 20th century. And it was this idea that it was his proposition that human beings have an innate interest, curiosity, love for other living things, whether they be trees or other animals or insects like we just have an innate curiosity and fascination with other life forms. And it's attributed to why like kids love teddy bears. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just baked into us, you know, I think because we, again, like we evolved, um, you know, gazing at horses running and, um, being around other life forms. And, um, there's just something about that interspecies connection. That's just, uh, integral to who we are as a species, you know? Yeah. You, and, and here was the term. I finally, I finally did find this and I love this term forest bathing. That is, that is a beautiful term. Describe that for us. I know this is part sure. of what we're talking about here. Sure. Yeah. So, um, you know, the practice of forest bathing, um, what well, it came about in Japan and it's called in Japanese Shinrin Yoku. And uh, it means essentially to um, open one's senses or immerse one's senses in the forest atmosphere. And uh, it was developed in the early 80s in Japan as a public health intervention to help deal with really extreme levels of stress in um, a lot of folks working in the cities, urban areas in Japan, um, you know, because of the economy and just the work ethic. 
Um, you know, there was just folks working really, really long hours and there was a lot of pressure to succeed. And um, so the Japanese forest agency um, developed this program, which they called forest bathing. And they were um, trying to invite folks to come out into the very beautiful um, evergreen forests in Japan um, so that folks would take leisurely strolls in the forests because there was a belief that that was relaxing and therapeutic. Um, about 10 years or so after the initial program started, um, some researchers in Japan started to look at the results of these uh, forest bathing sessions and found that um, there were measurable health benefits to taking slow, relaxed uh, walks through these evergreen forests. So um, the stress hormone cortisol levels, significant drops, um, heart rate, blood pressure drops, um, improved sleep, improved vigor, um, improved mental attitude. Um, and so some, some really good studies have come out of Japan to show that this is actually um, a very powerful medicine um, to walk in a relaxed fashion, especially in an evergreen forest. And, you know, back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, um, before modern germ theory, even here in the United States, um, many folks were prescribed heading up into the mountains or going into um, evergreen forests to help with consumption, um, to, to heal the lungs because it was believed that the air in the forest was healing. Um, and, and what's been discovered is that um, the, many evergreen trees do secrete what are called phytoncide. And these are basically these uh, essential oil compounds, um, which are part of the tree's immune system. So like the wonderful smell of a Christmas tree, mm -hmm. that wonderful smell when you're inside it, when you're in a pine forest, which is just so like citrusy and uplifting. Yeah. Um, that's part of the tree's immune system that helps to protect the trees. Um, and so, you know, the theory is that our immune system co-evolved with the immune systems of trees. And so by being immersed in the, uh, these uh, essential oil compounds, um, our bodies have also evolved to benefit from them as well. And so forest bathing um, is this practice and there's a whole methodology uh, set up around how to invite people into um, a relaxed and curious experience of connecting with the forest. Um, and so you can find forest bathing guides um, who, who do that work. And uh, we incorporate elements of that in our School of Mindful Outdoor Leadership as well at Kripalu. It's To me, it's extraordinary because <clears throat> it is something we need so desperately today, uh, regardless, regardless of what's going on in the world. OK, we could take away those uh, various uh, issues that, you know, we're all facing as human beings on the planet uh, you know, we could talk about the specifics, but the reality is that we need that connection. And 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 I think one of the 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 bill of sales that we've been sold over the centuries, if not the last uh, the last the last century in particular, is we're we're uh, separate and apart from nature. That that uh, you know we're unique and this and that and the other. And the reality is. Uh, it, that we aren't. We just, it, it isn't a question of whether or not we're affecting the natural world. We're a part of the natural world, aren't we? There is no, there is no disconnect no matter what you want to say. We are a part of it. And I heard this uh, comment not long ago, uh, uh, Micah, 
whatever events are going on in the world, okay, whether they be man-made or natural, like hurricanes and earthquakes and, uh, you know, and again, I don't know if these forest fires, for example, or, or brush fires in Australia were man-caused or lightning or what the cause was. If you look inside of yourself, you go within, you are going to find the same kind of turmoil that is going as within, so without, if you will. Is that, is that, uh, is that your observation as well? I mean, I think that's kind of a timeless universal truth. I mean, certainly um, Ayurveda, which is um, traditional Indian medicine, would would say that, I think. Um, you know, we are a microcosm of the macrocosm. Um, you know, so in the same way you find fractals in nature, um, you know, we are, we are that microcosm of the macrocosm. So, you know, if you look at um, I think if you look at the modern human, you'll see imbalances that reflect the imbalances in the natural world. You know, I, w- I would imagine a lot of the, the illness that we see today among people, whether it be physical or mental or spiritual, um, is certainly reflected in the world we're living in, in, in our environment and in, uh, in our ecosystems. You know, uh, David Abram, who wrote, wrote a couple of books that I really loved, Spell of the Sensuous and Becoming Animal, um, you know, he posed this question, which really kind of struck me, and I'm paraphrasing, but, you know, he, he kind of asks, he says, um, you know, it makes, doesn't it make sense that, um, you know, if we're seeing violence in our societies, you know, like all the mass shootings and whatnot, you know, is it any wonder when we have a civilization that's really conducting mass violence against the life support systems of the planet itself? You know, if if our entire society is in some ways slowly killing the planet's ability to support life, you know, does it is it is it a surprise that we're seeing, you know, violence popping up in other kind of grotesque ways in our society? Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a I think it's a powerful observation. Yeah. Um, and I would imagine that if we could if we could um, begin as a as global as, as global societies to transition to more sustainable ways of existing with the earth, I would imagine we'd probably see a lot of the violence against other people subsiding as well. Um, and I only say that because, you know, as I, you know, and again, I'm, this is only my opinion as just a random person who wrote a book. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you know, if you look around, if you, if you walk around, I don't know, I, a lot of folks don't seem really happy these days. You know, I see a lot of suffering. I see a lot of people who are, seem to be really deeply unhappy. Um, and, and I think that partially it's because of the way that we're living as a society day to day isn't very humane. Yeah. I, I think there's a, and Yo, Johan Hari wrote a book called Lost Connections, where he identifies all the different vital connections that are kind of missing from modern society. And, you know, I think we need to have nourishing relationships with friends and family and meaningful work and know what our place is in this world and have connection with nature. There's so many important connections that so many people today are really suffering from a lack of, I think. Mm. Well, in Wilding, you're going to develop a sense of calm, clarity, connection, and confidence in both your daily life and the great outdoors. And that ties in, of course, with our our campaign of 2020, the year of perfect vision. 
And it has nothing to do with your ophthalmologist or optometrist or contact lenses or eyeglasses. Uh, it has to do with that inner vision. Um, talk to us about your perspective, your observation and awareness of the importance of listening to that still small voice, of following our intuition, especially if it takes us down a road that is outside our comfort zone. Okay. Um, so, you know, I'll tell you a brief story. Uh, when I was 18, my dad took me to a place in Boston to have my aptitudes tested. And uh, two days of testing, and at the end of it, they're supposed to tell you, like, what your perfect, what the career is that you're most suited for in your yeah, life. Yeah, I've been there. I've been there. Okay. So at the end of the two days, the uh, doctor who was leading the program, she opened up my file, and she said, Mike, I don't know how to tell you this, but there's no career out there. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Um, wow. And so she said, you fall into a category called agent of change. And you're going to have to create a uh, work for yourself that doesn't exist yet that um, you're good at and the world needs. And so that set off the next 15 years of my life going on that quest and that journey of what that was. And that led me to yoga and it led me to outdoor education, a lot of things that didn't make a lot of sense at the time. But 15, 20 years go by and I've managed to synthesize into what feels to me like a calling. Um, I think that, you know, in terms of vision, perfect vision and listening to that inner voice, um, I was hoping when I was at that meeting with that doctor that I would get a very clear answer that would be sort of um, predictable. Like here, oh, you're a whatever it might be. You're mm -hmm. a plumber mm -hmm. or something else, like something straightforward. Um, but actually, you know, as I look back, it was really that process and that journey and that adventure, um, which was really so fulfilling and so meaningful to 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 get into that process of self-inquiry. I believe uh, that every person on this planet has a calling, has a special gift to share with the world. Um, but our modern society and educational system isn't really designed to help you discern and cultivate and, and bring forth that light that is unique to you, that is within you. And so I think for, it, I think it is a, it's an adventure and it's a daring endeavor to really try to bring forth that which is within you. And I think it was in one of the Essene Gospels, or maybe it was the Gospel of Thomas, which was attributed to a lost quote of Christ, where he said, if you don't bring forth that which is within you, it will destroy you. But if you bring forth that which is within you, it will save you. And I think that um, what, what the world needs today um, is people who are bringing that forward. And, um, but that's not a straightforward process. Um, and it, I think it, it is supported by um, contemplative practice. I think it is supported by um, getting quiet. Um, I think being out in nature supports it. Um, I think that, you know, if, if, if God's trying to get through to you to give you a message about, you know, or whatever you want to call it, spirit or God or the divine or your inner, your inner spirit, um, you know, you, you got to, you, you God's going to get a, a busy signal if your mind is always active. So you've got to, I think, through meditation, create these spaces where you can be still and quiet enough to let those messages come through, whether they're going to come through in something you're seeing out on the land or in a dream or a feeling or an intuition or a conversation. Um, contemplative, quiet, reflective time is so helpful. 
This next part requires discernment. Uh, James Redfield wrote in his book, Celestine Prophecy, about how we have messages one for another and that it is our responsibility to share those messages. And when we don't, we do ourselves and the other a disservice because, as I put it, uh, I can't finish my puzzle. I can't finish uh, my, uh, my, my puzzle of the big picture as I see it, uh, as I'm being led and so forth. And I need your peace. I need you to tell me and share with me those messages. We need to connect and put aside all of our differences so that we can both progress and in turn our society progresses. Your thoughts on that? Well, I haven't heard anybody quote the Celestine Prophecy in a while, I'll tell you that. Um, that was a book I read in college and I loved that book. And so thanks for reminding me of it. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. Um, I think that, um, you know, we all, um, we, we, you know, we're all interconnected. And, um, and I think because we're all interconnected, you know, we all hold a unique piece to one another's liberation and awakening. Um, I think that was something that, you know, the Bodhisattvas, you know, in the Buddhist tradition, um, you know, always, you know, stated to be true and still stated to be true. And, um, I think that, you know, we now know, you know, that, um, we live on a planet that is a, a, a holistic system. Um, you know, astronauts who spend time in the International Space Station and, you know, Apollo astronauts who've gone to the moon and back, many, many, many of them report um, having an experience, a realization of the oneness of life on Earth. And they come back very, very transformed from their view from orbit of this single orb and all life interconnected upon it. Um, and yet, of course, this is also the message of many of the world's contemplative and religious traditions as well. So, you know, we now know by actually going out there and coming back that it's true, you know, we're all connected. And, uh, and so for that reason, um, you know, we, we, we are all reliant upon one another in different ways, I think, for, um, you know, our collective future and, and uh, experience on this planet. Michael Mortali, I want to thank you so much for giving us so much time. I wish we had more, but I know you have to run off. Uh, but I want to remind our listeners of uh, the work that you are doing through, especially the book, Rewilding, uh, Reconnecting with Your Wild Essence as You Awaken Your Innate Bond with the Natural World. And I encourage people to go to your website. That website uh, actually is michaelmortali.com. That's M I C A H. M-O-R-T-A-L-I dot com. You can find out more about Micah and the work that he's doing, especially when it comes to rewilding, so that you can awaken your authentic spiritual connection with the natural world as you come home, come home to your true self. I, 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 you know, I have to be very careful, Micah, because sometimes I get into that preacher mode and it's like, ah, you know, you know, Take the words, take them, please do something, you know, make a, a difference in the world. Set aside your your philosophical, philosophical perspectives, your political perspectives, your economic, set all of that aside and find out what it is that you really, really deep down inside really want to do. And I think that through the work that you're doing and what you're sharing with us here on the program through rewilding uh, and, uh, and, 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 
so many other programs that we haven't had a chance to get into. Uh, that's why I suggest people go to your website. Uh, I think it's just so vital. And if you should ever find yourself drifting through nature over here to the Central Coast in Santa Barbara, we'd love to have you in studio. Hey, I've even made this offer to many of my guests. We will grab a couple of beach chairs. I will get my digital recorder and a couple of microphones. We'll go sit out at the beach and, and we'll have a chat and record that hey, for that a program. Sounds awesome. That sounds awesome, Rich. I'd love to do that. I'll let you know next time I'm out that way. Absolutely. Before I let you go, real quickly, I have three quick questions. I know you've got a, a tight schedule here, but let me ask these very quickly. You may have addressed them to some degree during the program, but I ask these directly. First of all, who is my, Micah Martoli? <laughs> Uh, good question. Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, who am I? Um, yeah, I'm just a, I'm just a guy who um, loves to um, be outside, and um, I just feel called to share the gifts of nature and mindfulness with others. And um, I'm, a, I'm a father and a husband, and uh, and uh, just a, a, I'm very much in love with my with my family and my land out here in the Berkshires, and. Uh, um, I'm director of uh, outdoor education and programming at Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? I want to help guide modern people into a deep, meaningful, and reciprocal relationship with their lands and the living earth. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Oh, geez. Just just these uh, basic questions. <laughs> oh, boy. I think my life's purpose is to uh, realize my full potential. Micah Mortali, I thank you so much for joining us on the program. And I thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Keep up the good work with 2020, the year of perfect vision. I'm Richard Dugan. This has been Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We'll be back on our next program. Check out the podcasts. And until next time, love to lull.